don't I don't think that we have to look very far um, in this world to realize that we as human beings value appearances. There's a verse that has been often quoted in the Bible that says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so this is, this is very true. Um, you just, just look at the advertisements on TV or watch a movie and you just start to realize the, that we idolize a certain kind of life, what success, what happiness uh, means. But the reality is, is that verse that I quoted reminds us is that appearances are not everything. Just think about the Titanic. The Titanic was a ship that looked great. In fact, it was at the time it was thought of, they said it was unsinkable. There's nothing. It was the best, the best, the best design, the best um, looking, most luxurious vessel on the sea, but it sank on its maiden voyage. From a biblical perspective, the world is really a lot like the Titanic. It looks so good. I mean, who doesn't want to fulfill their dreams or be, be happy? And so people are pouring out their lives for what amounts to a ticket to destruction. But you know, the life that looks so good is just a sinking ship. But the beauty of the gospel is that those who trust in the Lord have an unsinkable, unbreakable, undefeatable God. And so if you would turn in your Bibles to um, Daniel chapter 8, we're going to begin reading today um, about yet another vision that shows us the world from God's perspective. How does the Lord see the world? Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat is a prophecy that reveals the foolishness of the titanics of this world that look so strong and yet are about to be broken by God in his timing. And so we'll read in Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, behold, a ram was standing on the bank of the canal, and it had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. 
I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram, and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, the east, and the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So he came near to where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. When he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of this indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles and shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the power who and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for many days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it.
we go back to the beginning of Daniel's vision, we see he found himself on the banks of a canal that was in a city called Susa, which was a city that was under Babylonian control, but was going to soon end up becoming one of Persia's capital cities. Um, and so from the very beginning of this vision, um, it's taking us beyond Babylon, beyond that time to what God was about to do and uh, reminding us that he is in control um, throughout all time. And in the vision, Daniel meets a, a ram and a goat. Now, in human terms, we might uh, say they picture for us pride and foolishness. And you might wonder, how does how would an animal, how do these animals picture um, pride and foolishness? Well, in, in the animal world, if we think about it, it's the ram who dominates over all the other rams who rules the flock. That's the one that is in charge, and he does whatever he pleases because there's nobody to stop him. He's the strongest uh, ram out there. But here's the thing. That same ram that is so strong and, and is uh, in charge of the flock right now, one day a younger and stronger ram will come along and will challenge him and will defeat that ram because we know all rams grow old and die. So do all human kings. But unlike humans who maybe we can see, we could, we should know better. We can look at history. We can look at God's word. A ram, they don't have any thought for what might happen. They're just thinking about today. They're doing as they please and going along with life, right? And so in a way, that is a very much a picture of the proud and foolish king or nation or person who is not regarding um, the truth at all. They're not, they're thinking of themselves and going along through life um, like, like Nebuchadnezzar, who we spoke of uh well, over a month ago now, and he said, look at what I have done. And he did not think about what God would do to the proud. Thinking to ourselves that we are great, that we are good, that we are all these things. But like a ram and, the, and like the goat as well, their pride foolishly ended in destruction. It wasn't reality what they the way they saw it. And so there is no escape for the those that have a haughty spirit, a proud spirit from the wrath of God. And this parable, this this prophecy reminds us of that. So first in the vision Daniel sees a ram with two horns that nothing could stop. It was unbeatable. But then it, it met, the ram met its match. And this goat is the one that rules the, the flock, so to speak. And the goat became great. But the goat, too, at the peak of its strength, its horn was broken off. Luckily for the, the goat, four new horns spring up 
even though they're not as strong as before. And then finally, we read about this one little horn. And ironically, it's the littlest one that gets the most attention. <laughs> Shows you, it says it, its power is not its own. So appearances are not, as, things are not as they appear. But this little horn comes up out of one of these horns, and it opposes God and his people. But in the end, what happens is that it, like all the others, is broken by God. Now, what could all of this refer to? Well, thankfully, the angel Gabriel comes along and God tells him to come and he, and he uh, explains to Daniel in verses 20 and 21 that the ram and the goat are Persia and Greece. And so actually for us, we have the privilege of being able to look back on a prophecy that God has already fulfilled here where and see how he has kept his word, how he has shown his great power in history. When we, when you, if you read a history book, um, you see, you can read about the rise of the great kingdom of Persia and about how Alexander the Great came along and he just, he wiped them out. The, the armies of, of Greece were so much smaller than Persia, it's quite an amazing defeat that happened. Um, and yet, uh, but it was ordained by God. And so uh, Alexander defeated the Persians and Daniel's prophecy is fulfilled even down to th little things. Little things like the fact that the ram is two horns and the second one that came up higher came up last. That would be the Medo-Persian Empire, it was the Medes first, and then the Persians joined, and the Persians were greater. So now, usually we talk about Persia, but it was actually both of them together. They made an alliance. And a little thing like that is, uh, is fulfilled right down to those details, right down to the division of the kingdoms after Alexander the Great died when he was still a young man. And it was divided by his generals into four kingdoms. And, uh, and so God's word is true. God's word is fulfilled. And ultimately, he is the one who is great. He is the one who's powerful, not these world empires. Now we get to the little horn, though, and that gets a little more confusing. And people have a lot of different ideas. You might remember... Uh, about a month ago, I spoke on Daniel chapter 7, and there was another little horn in Daniel 7. And so we naturally wonder, is this the same one, or, or how does it fit together? And I want to get back, come back to that. But first, let's look at what chapter 8 has to say about this little horn. According to the angel in verses 23 and 25, the little horn comes directly out of the divided Greek kingdoms. If we go back to verse 9, it says, Out of one of them, out of one of the horns, came a little horn. And verse 23 says, At the latter end of their kingdom, a king of bold face would arise. So these verses point us to a king who would come from, from this broken up 
Greek empire and persecute the people of God, have great power that was not his own, and cause fearful destruction. It says that he would even succeed in the things that he does, destroying mighty men and the people who are the saints. And you may not uh, know this, but history actually tells us of one who um, did these things. A king that is named Antiochus Epiphanes. And this is in the time between um, the Old Testament and the New Testament that this takes place. And I know this is a lot of history, but I want to talk about it because I think it's important that we see um, how God has shown His power and His greatness in the past and will continue to do so until the time of the end. So this man named Antiochus came from one of these four Greek kingdoms. It was called the Seleucid Kingdom, and it was on the north. Now, according to Daniel's vision, this little horn would grow exceedingly great towards the south, the east, and the glorious land. Chapter 8, verse 9. History um, agrees with this and tells us that Antiochus destroyed many peoples, and he especially, it talks about in history, how he went to the south, to the kingdom of Egypt, and had many wars with Egypt, and then many wars with Israel, which most people would associate with the land of Israel. Oh boy. Um, the vision talks about the burnt offerings, the regular burnt offerings being taken away and the sanctuary overthrown. Talks about a host of people being given over to it in verses 11 and 12. And that remarkably fits with how Antiochus desecrated the temple. He set up his own high priest and offered sacrifices to Zeus. And, uh, and he halted the daily sacrificial offerings as well for a period of three and a half years which fits with the angel's reassurance that the sanctuary would be restored after 2,300 mornings and evenings in chapter 8, verse 14. In his pride, Antiochus is a man who took upon himself the name of God. His name, Epiphanes, means illustrious God. And so he raises himself up against God and against his people, but when the time of the end had come, God broke him in his power, and so he died. Um, and again, yeah, you may wonder, why is this relevant? Uh, I would simply invite you to take a look at the world today. The world is full of the same kinds of idolatry, arrogance, hatred towards God and his people. We don't have to just look at Antiochus. We can just look at Nebuchadnezzar and Rome and every nation apart from God to see these same kinds of things. Maybe a difference in degree, but it's not really anything new. And I believe this is why the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2, verse 18, Children... This is the last hour. And he says, 
As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And so my understanding of this is that Antiochus would be one of those Antichrists who has come, one who is a pattern, a picture of what is opposed to Christ, someone who is contrary to, to God and who in many different ways, in his blasphemy, his disruption of the worship of God, his disregard for the truth, his persecution of God's people, all remind us and point to um, not only what's going on today, but I think um, what, it, what is yet to come. Other Bible passages such as 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 13 it seem to indicate to me that there is one coming that we commonly would refer to as the Antichrist. Someone who will oppose God before Christ returns. And, and when I spoke on Daniel 7, I referred to this because it says there, right at the very end, right before chapter 8, it says, his dominion, this ruler, this authority, his dominion will be taken away and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the saints. Now we know for sure that didn't happen when Antiochus died, right? So there is something greater, there's something beyond Antiochus that chapter 7 seems to be talking about. The time that is yet to come. And so I would take chapter 7 and 8 and see it as giving us, first of all, we see one that is yet to come, and then we see one who has come. And when we put these two together, we have a view of God where we see that He has already begun to destroy and is destroying what is opposed to Him. And he is going to ultimately destroy all that is ungodly. But all of this is revealed to us so that we would believe and trust him in the difficult times we call today. Does it no good to talk about history or to look to the future if we do not see how God wants us to trust him, his power, that he is the stronghold, that he is the one that we are to look to. And uh, as we look at passages like this and ones that are in chapter 9 and 10, 11, and 12 of Daniel, I'm not saying this all fits easily together or there aren't other views or that it all makes sense. So you may have a slightly different idea or just don't even know what to think about Antichrist and the end times. And, and Antiochus. To be honest, a lot of this is over my own head. But I want to talk about it because it's important that we, we think about these things in our own minds and hearts and that we come to the place where we can be certain of the fact that God is sovereign, that God is in control, um, and that He does not change. And so, as He's worked in the past, He works today. And so he will ultimately continue to work until the day that he returns 
and makes all things new. Really, it comes back to that theme which I began the sermon, that things are not as they appear. The world that seems so unbreakable, that seems so good, so attractive, is on the brink of destruction. I'm not sure, have you ever heard the, there's a riddle about the unstoppable force and the immovable object, and which one would win? And you think about that, and it doesn't make any sense at all because it's not possible. You can't have something that's unstoppable and then something that is immovable. And so when we think about spiritual things and we think about the reality of God, He's the only one who is unbreakable, who is undefeatable. The world is not. That's why He is the only refuge in the storm. That's why the the question we need to be asking ourselves is, am I on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? And so really, the the point of this vision and the point of much of Daniel is that we would see that only God is worthy of worship. Only God is all-powerful and unbeatable. And, and it's only when we see the world the way God sees it, when we take a look at the Lord Almighty, that we really understand when people are living for the world, they're, they're playing a fool's game. It, it leads to nowhere good. The devil is a liar, and so are those who, who serve him, they are deceivers by nature. And so like someone like someone like Antiochus who led Israel astray, those that are uh, false prophets or teachers of our own day and age appear good and, and undefeatable and attractive. But we have the truth. We have a different view in Jesus Christ where the outward appearance isn't what matters. And we can see the world as God sees it by looking at the world through the lens of His Word. And so we can face the lies of the devil. We can um, take, cast down strongholds and, and take thoughts that are sinful. We can take them captive only if we know the Word of God, the, the, the truth. And actually think about and use the sword of the Spirit that pierces to the, the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And shows us the truth. Because as Jeremiah so re- reminds us, that reminder we need that, our, that heart, our hearts are deceitful, desperately wicked. And God cuts to the heart with his word. This passage teaches us um, several truths that really point us to Christ, that point us to the power of God, to His greatness. And so I want to take some time just to focus on three of those truths and hopefully give us some tools, some ways to think 
things to think about to apply to our hearts. Because sometimes we we kind of state truth or and we we just it's there but we're, it's not really affecting our lives. And so this, the three things I want to talk about are the world that that the world is headed for destruction. That God's people, the reality is that God's people are being oppressed. There is suffering, there is persecution in this world. I want to talk about what that means, what that looks like. And that God, lastly, is undefeatable. So the first point is that the world that seems so undefeatable is, is on the brink of destruction. First John tells us the world is passing away. And uh, in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus tells us, Take heart. For I have overcome the world. I know that I've that I've already said all this. I've already said the world is headed for destruction, and, and you just keep saying that. Well, what does it mean? Why why are you being such a downer, Pastor Matt? But if we do not grasp where the world is headed, we are going to go along with it. In our daily lives. We're going to, that's our tendency to veer off that way. Not to say that we need to worry or understand. We need to understand that the love of God, nothing can separate us from the love of God. There is no condemnation in Jesus Christ, but it is so important to continue to remember the wrath and judgment of God and to see that we don't want to go where the world is headed. It's not a good way to live in this life. It's not how God has called us to live. So when we remember this truth, we can take captive our desires and thoughts for success, for money, for ungodly pleasures, for the kind of life that we think matters. And you could fill in the blank with all kinds of things. We, we, it's so important to have that contrast, to see the difference between eternal life, living a life for God, an abundant life in His joy and love and peace, the fruit of the Spirit, in contrast to the way of the world that is headed for destruction. When we think about it, when we know the world is passing away, we can also stop worrying about the state of the world. So we could even watch the news and we don't have to worry because why? Because we know the world is passing away. Now that doesn't mean we give up or we ignore the world or we aren't saddened by the world. We, I hope we are. But it gives us a, a way, we, we, under, we begin to not value the world. And the state of the world can be absolutely horrible, but we can have hope because this world is not our home. And so the question really isn't how is the world doing or what's going on in the world? The question is what is God doing? What does he want to do first of all in our own life and our own heart? 
not first to be looking at everything else, but to be looking at what God wants to teach us and do in us today. One thing that God does when he judges nations like Greece and Persia and and, uh, when he judges nations today and is doing things is one of the things he's doing is revealing to us our sin. He's showing that we are not righteous. It's so easy to look to the world, to compare ourselves to the world, and and then we, we stop concerning ourselves with the word of God. We act a lot like that ram that thinks it's invincible. But it wasn't, was it? Pride comes before the fall, and, and that goat's horn tramp, uh, made its way into the ram's heart and trampled upon it. It was gone. It was dead. We need to give up looking to the world and see it for the sinking ship that it is so that we would turn to our only refuge, which is the cross of Christ. He is our hope. And so we need to see that the world is not worth it. That we might see that Christ is everything. The second thing I want to draw our attention to is that God's people face a very real oppression in this world. Persecution. But it's also temporary. Oppression of God's people is real. In that same verse where Jesus said, I have overcome the world, he said, in this world you will have tribulation. And so this is a reality. And it helps us to understand that when things are going on, God has a purpose. And in fact, in Christ, we can overcome. We can, you know, overcoming doesn't necessarily mean getting out of, but it means going through. You go, you, when you overcome a mountain, you don't go around it. You go over it. And so there is that aspect where Peter says in chapter 1 Peter 4, 12, Do not be distraught, surprised, my beloved, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. And we have passages that tell us that suffering produces character and endurance and and hope. So the Christian is called to suffer and to go through these things with joy for the sake of Christ. And we can have courage and joy even as as, uh, Romans tells us we're slaughtered. Romans 8, 36, all day long. And yet we are more than conquerors even in that. So it's a real thing. And it's important for us to to understand that and so that we can trust God because He has overcome. And in Him we're more than conquerors. But we also have the wonderful encouragement that oppression of God's people doesn't last forever because Daniel chapter 8 
says that at least in that point, at that time, it was 2,300 days. And then the sanctuary would be restored. So it's very true that God doesn't have suffering in every moment of our lives, uh, necessarily. But there is ultimately an end when Christ returns. And this is a comfort, and it's a, a really a weapon against unbelief and against hopelessness when we're in these situations of suffering and persecution. We can look to God, to the hope that we have in Him. Because we know the undefeatable God. We know the God that was behind the destruction of Persia and Alexander and Antiochus. We know that all of these things that God has already done are simply pointing to the reality that God defeats those things that seem to us to be undefeatable. And so... Often it is easy for us to speak of God doing something in the past or of God coming in the future to make things right. But are we making the connection that he does such things today? Do we really understand and believe that? And again, I'm not saying that, that, uh, that suffering goes away or, or, or persecution goes away or anything like that. But do we really believe that God is undefeatable and all-powerful in the midst of these things. And so this passage is a call for us to take off that mask and to put away our sinful ways, to stop looking at the outward appearance of things, stop looking at the world, and to see the world as God sees it. I believe that God has a way of breaking our own personal kingdoms just as he breaks the great kingdoms of the world. Hebrews tells us, as a loving father, God disciplines those he loves, and he takes away what is dear to us so that we would be near to him. It's also a time for us to see the world through the truth of God's word. To hide in our heart these truths that that the world is not our home. That the world and its desires are temporary. They're passing away. They are not worth it in the end. To remember that trials are both good and temporary. That God has a purpose in these things. And most of all, to remember that the God who worked in the time of Daniel is still undefeatable today. That verse that says that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, how is it that we can be more than conquerors? Talk goes on to say that the love of Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. It is because His love and what He has done on the cross His undefeatable, all-powerful love that we have hope, we have victory, we have joy, no matter what happens in this world. If we want to face this 
difficult world, we need to run to the Savior. And remember to see the world through the eyes of an immortal, invincible God. A God who loves us and gave himself for us. And it is by the truth of God's word that we know we can stand in the evil day. Because of all that he has done, all that he has bought for us. Unsinkable ships sink, they do. The Titanic is your reminder of that. Unbreakable walls can break. We have a God that does the impossible. In fact, nothing is impossible with God. He is undefeatable. Let's remember Him and look to Him in this world and in the troubles and trials that we face. For God is undefeatable.